0: Thanks so much for joining us for worship. These are difficult times in our life, uh, unseen really in our lifetimes, but I am so thankful to lead a church that is ministering to the vulnerable during a time like this. Uh, Over the last several weeks, I've seen our volunteers come together. We have made and distributed hundreds of protective masks. Uh, to people who need them. Hundreds of families have been served and fed either through our normal food distribution or through the brand new community lunch. And on top of all that, we continue to minister to our youth week in and week out as Pastor Joe meets with our teens. We continue week after week to minister to and shepherd our children as Miss Lisa continues to do her work. We continue to study God's Word together in small groups, e- even though it has to happen through Zoom, and we continue to encounter God together in worship, even as we have to do it through this virtual format. And I just want to say I want just a deep thank you to so many of you who continue to faithfully give. And for those of you who do that, that's the reason that we're able to do everything we're doing right now. So from the bottom of this pastor's heart, thank you for your continued faithful giving. And if you'd like to do that today, go to givetocovenant.com. Well, something has been missing these last few weeks that we've noticed. And it is that after a service like this, we normally have the opportunity in the parking lot, in the foyer, in the concourse, or even just remaining right here in the worship center to see each other, to greet each other, to get caught up, to pray for each other, to encourage one another. And so beginning this afternoon, immediately after this service, we have a virtual foyer. It's not going to be the same. There won't be high fives and hugs, and you're going to have to bring your own coffee, but... There is an opportunity for you to see and to greet not only your pastors, and this beyond just the normal platforms of Facebook and YouTube will be given to us through a platform that allows you both to see, hear, and also thirdly to speak uh, and to say hello to us and to each other. There may be people you haven't seen in six or seven weeks in that room, if you're a guest, we would love for you to join us in there as well and just introduce you to this crazy family called Covenant Church. If you're watching on either our Facebook or our YouTube platforms, our tech team is going to put the link to that room in the, the thread, and you're going to see it on the heading. You're, there'll be a link there, and it'll say, to go to the connection, click here. That's it. Just click that link and follow the instructions, and within about two minutes, you're going to be right into our virtual lobby. That's going to be immediately after this service. You'll be greeted by Pastor Chris Walls, and just as soon as I can get to my designated location on campus, I look forward to bringing you greeting as well. And for as long as you would like to stay, that's fine. We figure up to 15, 30 minutes just to take an opportunity to greet each other, and we're going to start that today. I look forward to seeing you. Last week, we covered what i consider to be one of the most powerful passages or at least one of the more empowering passages in scripture how is it that the that the spirit of god empowers us to live the grace driven life that we've been talking about over these last several weeks and we saw again this very empowering instruction uh, on how it is that Christ can live in me, and the fruit of the Spirit that works itself out in my life when I have surrendered myself totally to Christ, now I can live in complete freedom. Nothing I do will break God's law because I am filled with the Spirit of God who only wants to do that, which is pleasing to God. It, it radically transforms at the fundamental level every single part of my life as an individual. Well, today, we learn how badly we need that life especially when it comes to being in community with each other. Now, even though we're not able to gather on campus this, um, this Sunday, and it'll be a few more weeks probably before we begin sort of phasing in some on-campus stuff, we're being very careful, very deliberate about that. Uh, but even in this virtual format, as a church, we're in community together. And it may surprise you to learn that not always do people in a church get along with each other. Kind of like your family, I would imagine, over the last six weeks, trust me, you are not the only person. Some of you have talked to me personally. Some of you haven't, but there's some stuff going on in that house right now. There's some tensions that are rising. There's some things going on, and it doesn't feel normal to you, and maybe you've been afraid to reach out. You are far from the only family that I've talked to over the last six weeks that experienced some of that. It's not normal because we're not living in normal right now. And what you've discovered is that it hurts when that tension begins to rise. And furthermore, it hurts even more when it happens at the hands of those who are closest to you. When a number of people living out the fruit of the Spirit come together in a church family, we can counter that. There are churches All over the world, they all look very different. I've had the honor and the privilege to visit with them on five different continents. They speak different languages. Even here in North America, there are churches that are like ours in in their ministry model and the way they present themselves. There are others that are more liturgical, others where the pastor actually knows how to tuck in his shirt. There there are all kinds of different expressions. But if it's a genuine, Holy Spirit-filled church, no matter if it looks radically different or not, it's going to feel the same in this way. God's spirit is going to be there, and God's spirit is going to make a difference in the lives of the church because he's going to transform that church that has grace-driven people living grace-driven lives into a grace-driven community, and that's what we want to talk about today. How is it that each person in that community needs to relate to one another? I bring that up because in in Paul's letter to the Galatians, something has happened. You have these Judaizers who've come in and they've said, in addition to your belief in Jesus, you must now obey the law. You must now be circumcised. You must now refrain from eating certain things. You must now, essentially, what they're saying is you've got to become like us. You've got to worship Jesus just like we do. You have to follow the same convictions, whether or not they're in the Bible, that we do in order to get there. And that has spiritually enslaved a lot of the people here in this church And we've already seen the result of that in their individual lives, either religion on the one hand or rebellion on the other. And when that dynamic occurs in the life of an individual, and then you throw that individual into a group of other individuals who are also being negatively affected by false doctrine, well, we saw that result last week too. Paul described this dynamic in chapter 5. He said to the Galatians, you devour each other. And this is not what God desires this is not what Paul desires for the church at Galatia. Truth be any pastor who really has a pastor's heart wants to see for any church family. And so Paul reminds the Galatians of something that really our entire planet has been reminded of in recent weeks. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. You can argue and fuss on social media about the right way and the timing and all this kind of. You can do that all you want. But at the end of the day, we're all on the same planet. We're all doing this together, and that is even more true when we talk about a church relationship. So there are two big ideas that come out of this. The first one is simply this: you need a church family because there are burdens that are carried in life that you simply can't carry on your own. But secondly, if you want a church family to help you carry those burdens, you need a healthy church family. You don't need a, if you have a legalistic family like that, which is which we see in Galatia where the Judaizers have come in and they've begun to negatively infect the body. And the result of that is that church wasn't helping the Galatians carry their burdens. That church was actually putting more burdens on the people there. So the question for today is simply this. What does a grace-driven community look like? And as we look at these first 10 verses of chapter 6, we find that there are five such characteristics that ought to be deeply rooted in every community of faith that is driven by grace. So this is who you and I are called to be together, even as we worship virtually today. We are called to be together, the kind of community that we're called to pursue. And the instructions are strong, the warnings are dire, because there's no ultimate guarantee that we're going to be this way or that we're going to stay this way. So what are the characteristics of a grace-driven congregation? Well, there are five of them, and the first one is mutuality. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 6, "Brother, if any, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There is so much here that is reflective of how the earliest Christians, as we see in other ancient documents, viewed the benefits of congregational life, that you would bear one another's burdens, that you would restore those who have fallen. And and the reason for that is given in this very first phrase. It's given in the way that Paul addresses the Galatians, a way that may surprise you if you've been following along with us thus far and you have recognized how angry this letter is and how really opposed Paul is to his theological opponents. But he begins with this word in verse 1, brothers, brothers, and in fact, as you, as you examine the rest of the, the letter, you, you discover this is Paul's favorite term for describing this church. And, and if you think about it even more, particularly if you're not an only child, you grew up with brothers and sisters, it starts to make sense why this is such an angry letter. I imagine there's somebody watching me right now, probably way more than one or two somebody's, who have a sibling. You've got a younger brother or sister, you've got an older brother or sister, and you would die for them, and you would kill for them, but after all those years of spending your childhood under the same roof with them, can you just be honest and confess to the people in the room right now, wherever you're at, that you thought about doing the deed yourself a few times? That's what happens, right? When you're in a family, it can get tense. You would kill for them, but there's other times with that younger sibling, that older sibling, you wanted to kill them. It seems to be sort of a reflective feeling when siblings grow up under the same roof. And so the emphasis that Paul is stating here is, look, we're family. When he he starts all of this instruction out with the word brothers, that's what he's calling them to. Let's have the right environment here. Let's not have a legalistic environment. Let's not have a libertarian environment. Let's not have law and order dictating everything. Let's not have anarchy denying everything. Let's act like what we are. Let's act like a family. Why wouldn't arguments be more emotionally draining with with members of the family than with anybody else? I've been preaching for 28 years. I've been in the public eye for probably 15 or so of those years. Uh, Everything from articles that I've had published on the internet and magazines to sermons that I've preached that have gone viral and all of those kind of things, I've gotten my share of criticism over the years. But I have discovered something the level of vitriol, I mean, it doesn't matter how, how ugly you get. That, that, that isn't really what bothers me or what really hurts me. There's a sticks and stones thing that kind of comes to mind, in fact, um, especially if I don't know you. It just doesn't bother me. But the closer you are to me, the more, the more your critique matters to me, legitimate or illegitimate. Right? This is why an argument with my wife affects me a lot longer than an argument with a customer service representative on the phone that's probably on the other side of the world that I've never met and will never meet. And so we just need to understand, if we're a family, sometimes when these kinds of situations come up with strife or, or there's some tenseness, it's going, it's, it's going to be tough. And when you have a faith family that's empowered by the Spirit of God— and someone sins or is caught in sin, the reactions, Paul says, should be clear. First off, they ought to be spiritual. You who are spiritual, so spirituality, should overwhelmingly define how we respond as a faith community to sin. The very fruits of the Spirit we looked at just last week, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, are on full display when we confront someone who's been caught in a transgression which means our, our response is not based in law. We don't go back to the law of God. All right? when, when there is a church discipline issue, when we're confronting someone in their sin, it should not look like a courtroom. It shouldn't. All right. When you go to court, you're standing in front of a judge that you probably don't know and who certainly is not going to have a personal relationship to you. Your closest advocate in that room is an attorney, and he's only there because you hired him. That's not what this kind of intervention looks like, all right? Courts of law are wonderful things, but, but this kind of intervention that Paul speaks about should not look like a courtroom. It should look like a living room, but it should look like a living room during a family intervention, all right? If you've ever been through something like that, you had someone like me, a pastor or a mental health professional or someone who helped guide you through that, you had a dysfunctional member of the family or the extended family and it was substance abuse or something else that just was, was beginning to corrupt the rest of the family and you knew something had to be done and we love this person. We don't want to put them on trial in some official courtroom kind of way, but we've got to intervene in a way that lets them see the seriousness of what they have done. You, you don't go to court for that. You do it right there in your living room. You do it in love, but, but you do it with the intention of intervening. That's not pleasant, is it? It's just not a pleasant thing, but it's very different than a courtroom, and and that's, that's how you respond responsibly and lovingly, and here's why, because your goal is restoration. Paul says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him. Well, what does that look like? Well, in a companion text in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us at least what that procedure ought to look like. It's a more detailed process. And even there, you see, the intent is to be redemptive, but also responsible because sin is serious. It, it's unloving to not confront someone in their sin. It is, furthermore, very unloving toward the wider church to allow that sin and the effects of that sin and the consequences of that sin to spread willful and continued sin doesn't just hurt that individual. It has consequences for the entire body of Christ. And so here's what Paul is prescribing for us, a redemptive response in a family living room environment that has very clear and close guardrails. Because if there's a lack of repentance or rebellion against attempts to redeem, the ultimate result is removal. We see this sad result in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says the following, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. In other words, for us to get to this point, it's got to be bad. It's got to be like Howard Stern says it's bad, bad. Okay. Even the pagans say this is bad. But in the church, you're putting up with this nonsense. Are you kidding me? In this case, he says, a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. One of the more unfortunate, gut-wrenching things is when as leaders in a congregation, we have to switch postures from a restorative posture where we're working with someone who's been caught or has fallen and now we're in a posture of protecting that per- the, the rest of the body from that person because they are unrepentant, because they persist in their sin, because they keep making excuses, because they keep shifting the blame. In those moments, Paul says, it should be gut-wrenching because this is not a courtroom. This is a family living room during an intervention, and the Spirit is always redemptive. Now, here's, here's the thing. We redeem people that are in sin, but we also do something else. If you have a a church that can do that, Paul goes on to say, in every other way we have a responsibility of bearing burdens. In verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the word burden there just refers to a heavy weight. That could be any number of things. But it's a figurative reference to an ordeal or a hardship. And all of us have them temptation to sin, physical ailments, mental health, family dysfunction, financial strain, even demonic oppression. Furthermore, he says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know what he's saying there? We should share our burdens with each other because all of us have them. None of us are self-sufficient. So, if you're one of those people that you, I, well, I'm kind of the exception of the rule. Every time somebody says, Hey, how can I pray for you? Even when it's obvious that you're going through something, but you feel like, oh, I don't need anybody to rescue me, I'm going to be fine. I'll stand on my own two feet, I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It's just me and Jesus. Well, Jesus says that's actually not how it works. It is you and Jesus and Jesus' community that do that. If every time someone seeks to help, someone seeks to give, someone seeks to serve, and you're in the middle of the hardship, and, and your response to that is simply to double down and bite your lip and look back at them and go, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, I'm the ex- I don't need anybody. I love you. I love you. But I got to tell you, you're not being brave, nor are you being spiritual. You're being prideful. You're being prideful. And that pride is fueled by tone deafness and a self-deception of what's even going on in your own heart. And all it's going to do is drive you away from community and ultimately away from Jesus. And so Paul would say to you, based on this text, come into a community that is healthy and redemptive and will share that burden with you. Why else would this body feed hundreds of families every week through a new community lunch that Pastor Dave has led the way with, with excellence and a a host of our staff and volunteers have put together. Why else would we have food distribution giveaways? Why else would we tell you if you have a need, if you've lost a job, if there's some hardship, if there's some mental illness, if there's any kind of thing that we can help with at this very trying moment that our whole planet is going through, you need to call your church family, but that we are called to bear one another's burdens and there are people. Some of you have not heard that yet, no matter how often I've said it. Let me just go ahead and say it again. Maybe you'll hear it this time. There are untold numbers of people in this body who have told us from the very beginning, I am here if I can serve. You are not overburdening anybody by reaching out to us. That's our calling at this moment, to bear one another's burdens. And we can do that. I, I just got to be honest with you, because over the past four years, I have seen us more and more Become a community of faith that is all under the grace of God, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, a fleshly church in a time when the whole world basically shuts down, a church that's guided by the flesh, churches that are based in law, a lot of those churches are not going to make it. This church is in the midst of flourishing. You know why? Because I've watched you. Pray for each other. I've heard reports from our staff about small groups meeting online and lifting each other up, about ladies giving a baby shower over Facebook, over team members, volunteer and on payroll, uniting around this crisis. We are bearing each other's burdens. That kind of unity and mutuality and bearing of burdens, the law doesn't produce that. The Holy Spirit's the only person that can produce that. That mutuality, fulfills the law of Christ. And what did Jesus teach us? But that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Here's the big idea. Mutuality means your church community doesn't beat you up, it builds you up. It builds you up. And if you're gonna have a, an environment dominated by mutuality, then each individual in that environment needs to develop some humility. So Paul goes on in verse four, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. G.K. Chesterton once described a paradox as truth standing on its head screaming for attention. It's an apparent contradiction that you have to get, really get close to in order to see that it actually makes sense. And we, we see one of those here. Paul's just told us in the first three verses to bear one another's burdens, and now all of a sudden it's like he's saying the exact opposite. There's a burden that you must bear alone. Well, what he's saying there is if you want the kind of environment that requires or, 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 or allows us to bear each other's burdens, that begins with humility, and humility begins with self-examination. Jesus put it this way in, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, do not judge or you will be judged because according to the standard that you have judged, you will also be judged. Do not look at the speck in your neighbor's eye until you have taken the plank out of your own. Now, the issue we have with that text is we like those first two words, especially when we feel like we're being judged. So this is our application most of the time. Don't judge me. Our application is to somebody else and not to ourselves. Paul just told us passages like that come to us first. So before I look at another and go, don't judge me, the irony is Jesus was talking to me, and the specific command he gives me is to look in my own eye to see if there are planks there. So that's the first thing I have to do. I'm not responsible for whether my brothers or sisters are sharing burdens. I am responsible to ensure that I'm playing my role. And so the challenge here is for each of us to bring those attitudes and actions before God and his word. So, so beware of anyone who claims to be a spiritual leader who is, number one, always criticizing other people, always trying to pick at somebody, and simultaneously always themselves right with God. If you've got somebody like that, It's always somebody, even in in the church, it's always some other person, it's always some other department, I'm always the victim, I've never done anything wrong, blame shifting, all of it. You're talking to a Judaizer. Someone who is putting all of the law on someone else and none of the responsibility on themselves. And Paul says, there's one burden that's totally on you. And that's the burden of the coming judgment. The day when you stand before Jesus, in that moment, What's going to happen is between you and your God, nobody else is going to be able to carry your backpack at that moment. And there's a wider sense to what his words are trying to communicate here. It's it's, it's one thing to share a burden. That's what we're called to do. It's another thing to just completely transfer a burden. Sometimes, for example, if If you are unemployed, and I know there are a lot of you out there that are dealing with that right now, the church has a responsibility to help in that process, to try to fill the gaps for you. And there are so many of you that we have helped that I have prayed for you. Uh, There's just nothing tougher than wanting to provide for your family and at the moment wondering how you're going to do that. And, And if that's you, man, please come call us if you haven't done it already. Uh, we want to pray with you. We want to help you tangibly. We want to be there for you. But occasionally, there are those individuals who don't understand that while I'm seeking to have my burden shared, it, it's still, there's still a part of that burden that I need to carry, which means my role is to get a job. i got to seek something. i got to find what's next for me. And so in a normal day, you know, pre-pandemic, Those kinds of individuals, that that really wasn't sharing burdens. That was being codependent with another person. It was wasting resources that we might need now for someone who's genuinely in need. Churches don't help anybody if we confuse love with codependency. But at the root of understanding all of this, at the root of whether or not I step in to receive something, is humility. It's understanding that it's not all about me. Boy, are we getting that now, aren't we? Uh, can I just share something? This is going to be really touchy. This is, going to, this is going to make some of you mad. And I hate that. I really do. And I love you. And I hope you will listen. But it's just, it's just one of those moments. It is undeniably demonstrable what the science has told us, that if I wear a mask, I'm not going to transmit or I'm going to greatly reduce transmitting anything viral to somebody else if I'm out in a densely populated place. Now, I don't like wearing that thing. Some of you have seen me out in public wearing it, and I, I put on a really good face. It uh, restricts my breathing, and I don't like that. I, I have to speak louder, and I don't like that. I can't, it, it, if I forget this little strap that one of our volunteers made for me, i got to hang it on my ears, and it pulls on them, and that creates a headache, and I don't like that. There are all kinds of reasons that I might go, know, yeah, I'm not going to do that, but what I've had to come personally to the, the conclusion of is, you know what, this is not about me this is about my neighbor. And so if I'm going to be in a densely populated area around a bunch of other people, particularly people that might be in a vulnerable population, uh, I need to do what has been de- demonstrated uh, can actually reduce the trans- chances of transmission. Now within a, a church environment, that may look a little different. It, it may even be a little bit more surface level than that. I've, I've heard of people, I'm sure you have too, that leave a church because they don't, I don't like that worship style, or I don't like their I don't like that, or the temperature's not the right, or they don't have enough of this or enough of that, or there's more advantages. And, and, at the, and at heart, what that is is a transactional relationship, and that's all that you will ever have if you have a sort of church shopper relationship like that. Can I just be honest with you? I don't like every song our worship team sings. I love you all, by the way. But I don't. I, 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 they're, they're so, most of them I, I like. Some of them I love. There's one or two. I just personally wish we wouldn't sing it. And, and it would, honestly, I mean, I could pull rank. I could tell Ken, hey, I don't want to sing in this anymore. But there's no good reason that would benefit the church except that Joel doesn't like it. And it's not about me, is it? And guess what? It ain't about you either. So when you go, I didn't like that song, or the music was a little too soft, or it was a little too loud. Or, and by the way, when we got hundreds of people here gathered again at some point in the future, uh, there's no way we make everybody happy with that. Few people tell me that anymore because they've learned my reflexive response is to say, well, look, I, I, I regret that you weren't entirely satisfied with that. We don't like hearing that, but we, I have to tell you, it wasn't for you. Our offering of worship was for an audience of one. That's who it was for. And if yours is too, somehow we'll sink in. Somehow this guy can sink in, even with a song he doesn't particularly like. That's what Paul is talking about here, result. If you can do that, you'll become what I call a high-mileage disciple. Pastor Ken has has a Toyota Prius. That thing gets about 472 miles to the gallon. Not that many, but close. It feels like it. Uh, some of us, when all this stuff starts to open back up finally and we can safely go back to work and everything, and we're going to wonder where all the money went. It went in your gas tank. That, where, that's where it went. But Ken won't be one of those guys because he's got a high-mileage vehicle. You got a low mileage vehicle. See, some church members, they're like a big block 350 Chevy engine. You can get a certain amount of performance out of them and you can get a lot of noise out of them, but they break down on a regular basis. And it seems like every time you turn around, you're having to put more gas in their tank. You don't want to be that kind of church member. You don't want to be that kind of member of the family. You don't want to be exhausting like that. And one thing that that can really curb that is mutuality, spirit of mutuality, combined with personal humility and furthermore, submission. Now, that takes us to an interesting verse, verse 6. Paul says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, the immediate context here is about compensation, which makes this kind of awkward for me, that in the middle of a pandemic, I would quote a verse that basically says, don't forget to pay the pastor. But, But the truth is, This is about a lot more than mere compensation. We have nine pastor elders here, shepherding God's people. And some of us are on the payroll, some of us are not. But we all have a responsibility to lead the church toward being exactly the kind of body that Paul has described in these five verses. And so beyond the issue of compensation, the wider application is that the body of Christ should do two things. We should give generously, and we should receive generously. So I want you to focus in on that that wider application because when he says share all good things with the one who teaches, that means hold in common. And it's the verbal form of the same word that we use our English word fellowship to translate. So there's something tangible to the level of fellowship we have as a church body. It means we need to seek to bless each other and we need to seek benefiting from each other as a family. Now, some of us are better at one of those than the other. Can we admit that? Some of us are better at giving than receiving. Some of us are better at receiving than giving. If you're better at receiving than giving, then your propensity is gonna be a church shopper, a consumerist mentality, can I get this, can I get that? What am I getting in return? Uh, this is where that oft phrase, I'm not being fed, which really, it doesn't really mean anything, but a lot of that starts to come out. Um, Others are better at giving than receiving. You're very generous with your time, with your money, with your ministry. But every time somebody asks you what they can do for you, you just kind of buck up and you go, I'm good. I'm good. And can, Will you just admit today that that's just not always true? It's just not. The relationship Paul describes here is one between the dispensers and the receivers of biblical truth, and the inclusion of this statement within the larger context of burden sharing and all the things that define grace-driven community has some meaning for us today. This means we bless each other and we benefit from each other. So where the pastor-congregation relationship is concerned, it kind of looks like this. This would, would be at least one application. There's no way that televangelist can be your pastor. No way. Um, and I've said that. We're broadcasting on a lot of televisions right now. And I've said that to people. If you're not living in this immediate area and you're tuning into us every week, I'm honored that you're blessed by the teaching, that you're taking something away from it. Uh, I'm, I'm incredibly honored by that. But there is no way I could ever be your pastor if you live in Colorado or Baltimore or Annapolis or somewhere where it takes you longer than about an hour to get to this campus or any other campus that we may have planned for the future. I, I can't be that guy. Unless, of course, you have immediate plans to move to the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, in which case our physical address is 7485 Shepherdstown Pike, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. We'd love to have you in that case. But you need to find a local body And you need to belong to that local body and you need to get blessed by that local pastor and you need to benefit from that local assembly and you need to bless and benefit that local assembly with your time, with your money, with your service. Because that's where grace-driven community is found. You know, I'm thankful for the eight other godly men that serve alongside me in this task of shepherding here. We do that, and we're here to serve. We're here to do it by encouraging that very culture that Paul speaks of here. But it starts by modeling that culture itse- ourselves. It starts at, by, by modeling that culture. It continues by, by leading in a way that brings about grace-driven community. And since compensation is at least one part of what Paul's talking about here, let me just say on behalf of myself and pastors Ken, Chris, Joe, and Dave, those of us who are on the payroll here, let me just say thank you. We are well cared for. I have always been well cared for. You are a blessing to me and to my family. And to be together is to be under the word together in our own environment, led by our own pastor, submission, humility, mutuality. Fourthly, reverence. So we've gotten some instruction. This is how you build a grace-driven community Now comes a warning, beginning in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So it's an agricultural analogy, right? You put corn in the ground, you don't expect okra uh, to be your crop, When you uh, grow an apple tree out in your backyard, I I would imagine nobody expects to get pecans off of that apple tree. Likewise, don't expect the flesh, all those corruptible things that Paul has talked about earlier, to produce anything eternal. And the reason you shouldn't expect that is because God is not mocked. He will not be held in contempt. When a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I took this course in high school called Economics. And one of the things I learned about in my economics class was compound and interest. It's an economic model that I think illustrates Paul's point that he's using an agricultural analogy for here. You invest money, okay, so here's your principal. If it's $100, if it's $1,000, if it's $10,000, and that money then earns interest, right? So it gets bigger right, the pot gets bigger, and then that principle and interest together become principle and interest, and there's more interest that comes on top of that, and the interest you're earning on, on something this size is going to be more mathematically than something interest that you're earning on something that's this size, and so as that snowball gets bigger, it gets exponentially larger and more powerful, which is why over a 30-year period of your working life, you could become in wealthy if you do this right you could do that. I mean, with, a, with an investment as little as $100,000, you could do that. You go, that's a, that's a lot of money, pastor. Well, $100,000 is a lot of money. It really is. But when you divide that up over a 30-year period, that's just a little more than $250 a month saved or invested in the right way. And by the way, most of you have car payments bigger than that. So we're really not talking about a lot of money here, right? $100,000 invested over a 30-year period in the right place, can make you a millionaire by the time you're Medicare eligible. But it matters, two things matter in that, in that analogy, right? Number one, what you invest in, and number two, where you invest. You can't invest in treasury bills and expect to retire. I sat with a, a financial planner some years ago, and, and he got me on the right track. Because, I, again, I, I probably sound like I know what I'm talking about here, but I really don't. And so I, I, I didn't know where my investments were. I didn't know where they should be. And so they looked at, he looked at all of my portfolio and he made some, uh, some arrangements. And he said, this is what we want you to do. We pulled the trigger on it. And I said, so what do you think? And he, and he looked at me and he grinned and he said, well, what I'm looking at right now is the financial portfolio of a man in his mid-40s who will actually be able to retire one day. I said, what were you looking at before? He said, the portfolio of a man in his 60s trying to hang on to an amount that's not going to last him until he's 62 because I wasn't investing in the right stuff. So what you invest in matters. This is why we've got all these passages that have come before in Galatians. If you sow law, you know what you're going to harvest? Law, legalism, all kinds of oppression. If all of your relationships are transactional, your church relationship, your family relationship, your work relationship, what do I get right? As long as I'm, I, I got to make sure the rent doesn't get too high here. It's a train. I'm not saying some relationships shouldn't be transactional, especially insurance companies, but that's a whole other message. But if every relationship you have is transactional, every relationship you have, they're eventually going to treat you the same way. If you're judgy and nitpicky, always expecting this or that, and always looking down and with condescension on anybody else, then you just need to expect that the people who are going to eventually stick around you, and there won't be many of them, by the way, because most people don't want to be around somebody like that, but the ones who do, you know what they're going to be like? Judgy and nitpicky and just difficult to exist with. You're not going to want that. I don't like being around people that are always sizing me up, trying to find something wrong with me, picking stuff apart. But conversely, if you sow love and grace and acceptance, you're going to reap the same for that. It matters what you invest. It matters furthermore where you invest. I remember talking with a young lady who was going through a divorce and she she, she just couldn't figure out why. why. Why did we grow apart? Why this happen? Why did that happen? And I started asking about their lives and every single activity she was involved with. And she was involved in a lot. I mean, it was one of those, you may be one of those people, you have to say yes to absolutely everything. And what was happening, she was saying yes to everything except her husband. And so for a number of years, they really had no relationship. She did her thing, he did his. And now she's wondering why. If you, if you sow into your marriage if you sow into your children, if you sow into your work, um, don't get mad at me, but in the middle of a pandemic, if you sow into diet and exercise, virtual church, nobody can throw anything at me. Wherever you sow matters. It matters. You will reap in those areas. If you sow financial discipline, listen, I... I have never, ever been pastor to anybody who, number one, was committed and loved their church, and number two, was was approaching their church family in a spirit of humility and mutuality and doing what they did, not primarily for their own gain, but for the benefit of their body that they loved. I've never met anybody who had those two characteristics who became a high-maintenance member. Nobody. Pastor Ken, I don't know if this is original with him or not, but he calls them EGR, Extra Grace Required Members. And I understand what he's saying. This really isn't about grace, though. And when it comes to our relationships and our relationship with each other, they must be characterized by a reverence for God that recognizes, I'm not going to get anything I don't give. I will not reap anything unless, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I initially make an investment. Reverence. God will not be mocked. Submission to God and to each other. Humility. Not putting myself first in every circumstance. Mutuality. Understand that I'm part of a larger whole. And if you've got all that, here's something else you can do. Perseverance. Now, this is a text that greatly encouraged me just this morning. Look at verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How many people in front of me right now are thinking about it? It's been a long time, and you're wondering, and you thought this was not really going to last this long, and now we're not entirely sure exactly when we're going to get back to normal if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Don't get tired. That's what he's saying. Now you can be tired in a good way. I did some yard work the other week, and when I got done, my back was hurting because I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm knocking on fifty. Um, but I and I was tired. I was physically exhausted. But man, I looked back. I I, I just kind of looked at the work I'd done, and I thought, man, I have accomplished something. I felt accomplished. I felt fulfilled. I sat on my back deck and surveyed all of my kingdom that I had just freshly mowed and landscaped and mulched. It was a great, great evening. I took a lot of satisfaction. Um, that's not the kind of tired I'm talking about. You power wash the house. A lot of you have done that, in fact. It's, uh, apparently, there's no coronavirus at Home Depot. But a lot of folks have gone there, I, and I've been there too. Uh, you picked up pick up some stuff, come back, you're working on all kinds of stuff. That's a good kind of tired. But what Paul's referring to here is a physical exhaustion that's often coupled with an emotional exhaustion. Or even this, even an emotional level of exhaustion that will eventually make you physically tired. And there may be some of you sitting at home because you're in a high-risk pool and you've been sitting there for about six weeks. And emotionally, the toll has been such on you that even you could sit on the couch all day. You could sleep eight hours a day, including it uh, added to the, the nine hours you slept the night before, and you still feel physically exhausted. That's what he's talking about. It's an emotional, physical emptiness. It's a posture that says, I'm ready to give up. My maternal grandfather had a favorite hymn. It was called Farther Along. Some of you who are a little older may, may remember this. The lyrics go something like this. Tempted and tried, we're off made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. Old way of saying, why is my life like this? While there are others living about us, never molested, though, in the wrong. Nothing seems to bother them. They seem to do okay. When death has come and taken our loved ones, when it leaves our homes so lonely and drear, then do we wonder why others prosper living so wicked year after year. Some of you may be there. You're just empty. Here's the instruction. Don't give up on your mental health give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your economics. Don't give up on your future. Don't give up and stay faithful to Jesus and stay in a community that will help you keep from going there. And here's the reason why, because in due season, that's a phenomenal phrase, The the Greek term there is kairos. It just means the the ancient Greeks used it to refer to the right moment for fundamental shifts. The right moment for a fundamental shift, an opportune time that is marked in the future by genuine blessing. Keep doing the right thing. Stay in community. Keep bearing one another's burdens, and don't stop because blessing is coming. Not only will this be over, But there'll be some good stuff that you never even fathom that is coming because of the grace of God. Now, what does doing good look like? Well, Paul reminds us of that in verse 10. Do good to all because all are created in the image of God. But more particularly, do good and let that start with your own people. There's kind of a parallel here. Kind of a parallel. Right at the end of this chapter, he's going to refer to Galatia as the Israel of God. He's drawing these parallels between the people of God under the new covenant and the ones under the old. And what do we remember about God's promise to Abraham? I'm going to bless you so that through you, that blessing might flow into the world. So we take care of each other so that our body is healthy, though the body is empowered by the Spirit, the body of Christ is empowered by grace, and we are all empowered by that to do that work for the good of the entire world. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. There are better days coming. This letter has encouraged us to live by grace. When the church shares in this grace together, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that corporate connection to the Lord transforms relationships at every level. Maybe you were raised by the law. Are you one of those people and that's your background? In a family environment, even your parents, there was not unconditional love. Everything was transactional. Their approval, even their love, was based on whether you could perform, whether you made them look good. A law-based relationship at home. Maybe you come out of a church environment that it was just cursed with a toxic form of fundamentalism that was all about rules and regulations and less about conforming you to the image of Jesus and more about conforming you to a specific image of, of fundamentalistic nonsense. Were you raised in the law? Or maybe just the opposite. Maybe you were raised in rebellion. You were raised in a family that let you watch whatever you want, read whatever you want, your mind, your soul, everything's been filled with junk. You watch substance abuse in your home. Everything about your early life as a child was characterized by anarchy and insecurity. Or maybe that rebellion translated even into some of your past church experiences with some toxic forms of of Christian progressivism that asks all kinds of questions but refuses to give you clear answers that are right there for the taking in the Word of God. With genuine community and growing together in this new family, you can finish in grace. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your Word, and thank you for the way it not only empowers us individually, but empowers us as an entire faith community. And Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would encourage us. Lord, I just sense that there's some people who need to hear, don't give up. Don't give up. Lord, in moments like this, may we look to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom lockdowns are just another day at the office. May we learn from them. May we learn from the way that they have overcome some of those emotional uh, difficulties by relying on and walking in your spirit. And Father, may we we be grown through this. May you burn away all the dross and the things in our life that don't belong there because you love us and because there's something beautiful there that you created that you want on full display. Father, continue to work that in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It is now time to respond to God's word. And the beautiful thing about it is you don't have to be in a church building for that to happen. You can respond right there where you are. Maybe you have no relationship to Jesus Christ. We would love to share the gospel of Christ with you. Would you just send us an email and we'll be in, we'll be in touch with you very, very soon. We're going we're to jump on that one very, very quickly. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be communicating with you on telling you what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how to, how to have your sins forgiven, how to enter into this grace-driven life. Maybe you need prayer, you need someone to counsel with. Reach out to us now. God is good. God is good. He is good to us. He is good to us even in this moment. And it's been a delight to worship that good and great God with you on this day. i remind you again, uh, if you would like to give, you can send it in by mail, PO Box 1674. Shepherdstown, West Virginia, 25443, or you can go to to givetocovenant.com right now or at any other point. Uh, Thank you for giving and for sharing with us so that we can be the blessing that we are continuing to be in this moment. And I also want to remind you, right immediately after this service, you're going to find Pastor Chris. And then just a few minutes, I'm going to step into that virtual lobby. And I look forward to seeing you there. Make sure you uh, that link should be displayed uh, rather clearly for you at some point on one of these online platforms. I look forward to seeing you there. Let me pray for us. And then we'll be dismissed with uh, some music and just some time to think through as we collect an offering together virtually. Father, thank you again that you are good. Lord, may, may that goodness flow through us and out of us. May it bind us together. May it make us powerful for the sake of your name and for the proclamation of your gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.